Well, we are beginning to wrap up our study on the book of Genesis. We have two weeks left, and what has happened as we've kind of progressed in an eight-week series over the book of Genesis, we've been looking for what is kind of the meta-narrative, what is the the massive arc of, of what God is trying to teach us with all of these different stories, and now that we've kind of gotten to the end, we're focusing on one singular family, and specifically one singular son within this family. Today, we will be looking at the life of Joseph. We've kind of gone through these moments of seeing God do all this stuff to redeem a people, to fix what was broken in the garden, and now the the ending, all of the last uh, several chapters of Genesis have to do with the book of Joseph. Now one, if you want to, you can begin to turn to Genesis chapter 37. This spans several chapters, and so we'll kind of do what we've been doing. We'll look at key moments in each of these chapters that tell the overall story. And if you don't have a Bible, we always have blue ones at the connection table in the back. They're right there. You can get up and go grab one now because we want you to be able to take notes and to have that as a gift. And so here's the question. I did a quick study on, in Google and just said, hey, what motivates people more than anything? And a, a professor at Ohio State has actually done some research and come out with what uh, his article said, the new theory of motivation. So this is, this is his idea and his research of these are the things that happen in life that, that really dictate our behavior. These are the things that will kind of steer the course of our heart and our mind and our actions depending on these 16 things. And I want you to see what he concluded in his research. It says this. After conducting studies involving more than 6,000 people, Reese has found that there are 16 basic desires that guide nearly all meaningful behavior. So he's about to list these desires. I would love for you in this time to go, man, what are some of those that I can see in me? Like those motivate me to do things and to make changes or or to move into action. He says the desires are power, independence, curiosity, acceptance, order, saving, honor, idealism, social contact, family, status, vengeance, romance, eating, physical exercise, and tranquility. He would say these are the things in you and I that just we have a a, a nature in us that these earthly things move and dictate some of the behaviors in our life. If these things are threatened or these things are offered, we will make changes to go and take hold of these. And I look at that and I go, yeah, but that, that, that's true. I see that in my own life. You probably see some of these that go, these are important to me as well. But here's the question that I think the story of Joseph is going to pose for you and I. Like, what if God says, I'm going to strip you of every single one of these? What if he takes it all away from you? I, I think the question he's asking us this morning, like, is he still good? Is he still worth following? What if he causes these things to disappear in your life? Not just random accidents or, you know, it's something he allowed to happen, but he literally strips you of these on purpose. Would you still follow him? That's a big question. It's a hard question. I don't think any of us want to go, man, I want suffering. I want you to take all the best things of life away from me. But the Bible does not promise that he will not do that. In fact, it kind of teaches the other side of that, that he's going to do that often in you and I. And there's this prevailing movement right now called uh, the prosperity gospel. And what you see in, in pastors and teachers is they're going, look, God wants you to have the abundant of all earthly things. Like that's what he wants more than anything is that you take hold of all that the earth can have. And so if you have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, if you speak it into the air, it's going to happen and you'll get it. But Joseph teaches us a very, very different story. In fact, we're going to see a man who is righteous, who's obedient who continues to do good even though he's wronged against, and God causes 
over and over these, these moments that strip him of all these things. And so I think what Jesus is wanting to teach us this morning is he is enough in his promises about what he will do in us. He is faithful. And I want to begin with 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you want to hold your place in Genesis 37, turn to 1 Peter 4. Uh, There's a great moment in Scripture that teaches us about this. It'll be on the screen as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. Here's what the Bible says. The church is being persecuted heavily in this moment And Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He's going, don't be caught off guard. This is a part of what it looks like to follow Jesus, that he's going to have moments where he causes the good things of life to be stripped from you for a greater purpose. Don't be be surprised as he tests you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. This isn't strange. But rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's suffering. This call to go, hey, as you pick up your cross and you follow me, which is Jesus' command to us, he goes, you're signing up to die to these 16 things. You're signing up to go, hey, man, whatever you want, Jesus, I'm in, and I'm going to count it a joy if you count me worthy to suffer alongside of you, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He's like, look, if you suffer for Christ's sake, rejoice in that. But don't let it be said of of people of God that we're suffering because of our sin. He's like, that's your own fault. 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome of those, who not obe- that, of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In verse 19, I, if you underline your Bible, I think this is the theme of Joseph right here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to what? God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will, what he wants to happen, what he preordained to happen in our life, he says, when you suffer according to God's will, what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's this call in scripture that even when God brings moments in our life that are literally tearing us apart as though it would fill, he's going, can you continue to glory in God and trust your soul to the faithful creator who has promised good for you and good for his namesake. And will you continue to be obedient and faithful? This is the question that Joseph poses to us this morning. And it's not an easy one. It's a scary one. I I think there's part of us that all goes, man, God, if you could just continue to let me have tranquility and comfort and peace, that, that, that feels good. I don't really want any of this to come. And yet God is going, sometimes when I do this, it's absolutely the best for you and for others. And you don't even know the extent of my sovereignty and my power. And so Joseph is about to teach us this story and I hope that it encourages us. I hope that it prepares us that we are promised to suffer alongside Jesus. We're not promised this like prosperous life on earth, but we're promised a prosperous life after the earth. And we go, man, it's gonna change the way I look at my life. I'm gonna trust in the Lord. And so the background leading up to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph begins to dream, we've looked at these things. We we left off. Um, Isaac had Jacob. 
And Jacob wrestled with God, finally gets the name Israel. His 12 sons, born of four wives in sin, um, is now going to be the namesakes of the nation of Israel. This is all of God's happening from the beginning to make for himself a covenant people, to be faithful to a people, to fix what was broken in the garden. And if you look over and over, we see over and over fighting between the families. We see everything trying to, the, probably the enemy working hard to destroy this lineage of who would one day be Jesus. And yet we see God being faithful, able to conquer, sovereign, and using really jacked up people. Like no one in this lineage of Jesus is doing anything right for the most part, and yet God is showing grace and mercy to accomplish his work and his purposes, and he's gonna continue to do that as we pick up in Genesis chapter 37. So we're gonna read a lot of this first chapter, and then we're gonna kind of paraphrase and tell the story quickly of the rest of Joseph's life till we get to the end. So Genesis 37, starting in verse one, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, this is important. All this begins, Joseph is a 17-year-old boy. When he gets established in the kingdom of Egypt as second in command, which we'll see, he's 30 years old. So from the time these dreams come and all this happens, 13 years of suffering and affliction and doing the right thing, and yet bad things continue to happen, it would seem. He was 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha. His father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their fathers. This would make sense, right? You got four wives. You got 12 brothers of different wives. Joseph, we're about to find out, is the favorite. There's already, because of the sin of Jacob, there, there's strife within this family. And he comes back and he says, hey, this, it's not going well for me out in the field with the boys. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that, there, that he made a robe, uh, that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. This time he's added his mom and his dad. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, because his father kept, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now look, there's a lot of, uh, I've even heard this in messages before. You know, you got Joseph, this like punk 17-year-old kid that's got all the favor and he's kind of braggadocious. He's going, look at my cool coat of many colors, which I don't think would be cool, but whatever. And he's, he's bragging to his brothers, his brothers hating. And then he's like, dude, I had this dream. You guys are going to literally bow down to me. But I honestly, I don't think that is what is happening here. Like I look at the overall story of Joseph and I actually see him as a pretty humble and faithful and obedient kid. Like he does the right thing over and over and over again. I think what you've got here 
is you've got this horrible family dynamic. The dad's going, I actually love my son more than any of you, so I'm going to make him this cool coat. I'm going to give him extra gifts. And, and the rest of them are going, we, we hate you because of this. Like, we're jealous and we're envious of what you have. And then he has this dream from the Lord. And like, let, let's be real. If you had this crazy vision from God, would you not go to your family and be like, um, I had this dream. I want to share it with you. I, I really think he's just coming to go, look, God just showed me this thing. And, and, and you guys were bowing down to me, and I don't even understand what it is. And God has said, this is going to happen. And his brothers goes, we hate you. We're so jealous of you. To the point now, we're going to see that they move into some deep sin to, want to kill him. Now, I want to pause for a second, because I, the main point of the story is not about jealousy and envy. But we do see something here that, that applies to us as people. Like we see that jealousy and envy and strife and division, these things will begin to kill the soul. It will move us to all kinds of dark sin. And I think for a moment we need to look and see what do we do about these things. Here's the definition of envy. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. There's something in us as we see like the Facebook feed, or we see people around us that we're not, we feel like, man, they're not even trying to do things right and look at the cards they're being dealt, that we look and we go, I want that, I need that, or I'm jealous of these things, or, I can't rejoice with you even as a brother because I, I hate you actually because of these things. There's division even among the church, right? Why? Because we begin to look and we go, I envy what you have. I'm jealous of what you had. It's not fair that these things are happening to you and not to me. There's this great sense of entitlement. Listen to what Proverbs 14.30 says. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Like This is what's about to take place for these brothers. Their soul is going to rot because of envy and jealousy. And we look at it and we go, yeah, man, they probably should have had a dad that loved them better. Like, it's not necessarily that they were in the wrong for the situation, but they're in the wrong how they respond. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Puritans. There's a group of men that are a group of people that, that kind of broke off and wanted to really follow Jesus with all that they had. I love reading their writings because they have horrible views of themselves, which I love. I think this is important. Like you read their writings and they go, I'm the worst of sinners. They, they kind of sound like Paul. They're going, I, I mess everything up. I'm worthy of nothing. I hated you until you saved me. I would have never followed you unless you came and you, you saved me and brought me into your family. And then they have this amazing view of who God is and who Christ is and what he has done in them. And it creates in them this life of going, I will give you everything. I am entitled to nothing. Like you read them and they're just like, all I deserve is hell. Like anything past hell, you are giving me what I don't deserve. And I think it causes in them this humility and this desire to, to love and serve the Lord and other people. And any good thing I have, God, is just an extra blessing that I didn't deserve. And if you take it away, it was just an extra blessing, so it doesn't matter. I still have you for eternity, and that's the most important thing. But we live in, in, in a world and in a culture where it's like, we begin to think, man, I deserve things. Like, I'm working hard to do this right, and I feel like I should be entitled to these things. And it bursts in us envy and jealousy and strife. Galatians talks about this in Galatians 5. It, here's what Paul said. 
But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the key to all this, whatever it means to walk in the Spirit, that's what we're supposed to do. Not sure what that means? We've got to figure that out. And then he tells us, the, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit that lives in us. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now I want you to see this list for a second because there's like some heinous things in here that we go absolutely like the work of a flesh. And then he throws in jealousy and division and envy and bitterness amongst these other heinous things. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft, enmity, strife. Like we got these big ones and then he goes in jealousy. In fits of anger, when you have these outbursts of anger in your home or at your workplace or against your kids, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, and orgy, and things like these, I warn you as I I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He goes, you and I as believers, we are going to be marked by these fruits. It's not, going to say, it's not saying that, man, there's not times where we run back to the old way and we do feel jealousy and division and anger and all these things. But he's going, this isn't the practice of someone that has the spirit of God in you. There's something in you going, I hate this. I don't want this anymore. And so we, we pursue walking by the spirit. And that's where life and hope and joy is found. It's kind of like what we talked about last week. Some of you guys with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, it's a weight around you that is rotting your bones. The same is true for jealousy and envy and any sin. It entangles us and it it rots our soul. And God's going, look, if you'll walk and keep in step with the Spirit, I'll produce fruit in you that will bring life and glory to me. And so what does it mean to walk and keep step in the spirit, we've used this verse before, but it's powerful. Philippians 2, 1 and 4, it's on the screen. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is a huge command. Hey, you just need to count people is more significant to you. That's impossible until you read the rest of this passage of Scripture that says you're going to do what your, your Savior did, who humbled himself and he left his throne as the king of kings. He put on flesh like you and he served you and humbled you himself for his enemy unto death. And he's going, man, if that's the man that you have said, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm dying to self and I'm following you. He's going, you have the spirit of God that will allow you to walk in true humility and true joy. You can weep with people that weep. You can rejoice with people that rejoice. And it frees you from envy and jealousy and bitterness and dissension. There's freedom there. But if we're not careful, we find ourselves like these, these brothers who let it eat them up and we continue on. 
Verse 12 of Genesis 37. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers, with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went up after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18. They saw him from afar and became, uh, before he came near, they, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the, pit, the pits. Then we will say this fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. If you want to underline that, that's huge. Like we know, we talked about this, this amazing sovereignty of God and him orchestrating all things together for good. Like Literally, these guys are going, we're going to kill him, and let's see what happens of these dreams. And God's going, I'm causing this to happen in this moment to fulfill these dreams. It's amazing. 22, and Reuben, the oldest, said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to the father. So the oldest brother's like, dude, we don't want blood on our hands. He's got this plan. Let's get him in the pit, and I'll come back, and I'll get him. But that doesn't happen. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him in a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell our own flesh and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Like, this is the beginning. When you read Exodus one day, like, this is how they end up in Egypt. All right? Moses is trying to say, this is, this is the story also of how we found ourselves in slavery in Egypt. But the brothers act. They sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They take his robe, covered in blood, take it back to the dad. The dad's like, surely someone or, uh, an animal has eaten him, weeps. They've lost his favorite son. And then the story continues. And if you know the story, this will be familiar. But I want to give you at least enough of the story to remind you what's going on. One, up to this point, all we've had is a super faithful, obedient kid that has now found himself in the slave trade, headed to a foreign country. And I'm sure there's part of him going, why in the world is this happening to me? And what we're about to talk about in like five minutes was 13 years. 13 years of faithfulness and obedience and following God and nothing going the way it should have. Being stripped of all these 16 things that we talked about in the beginning. And so as he makes his way to e Egypt, he's bought by Potiphar. Potiphar is the leader of Pharaoh's um, uh, army, and, and he brings him into the house. And there's something super important about Potiphar that he says about Joseph. I want you to look at it just for a moment in Genesis 39, verse 2 and 4. Here's what Potiphar says about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So I want you to think about this for a second. 
Like, what, what about the times in your life where you're going, God has abandoned me. Like, I'm suffering, this isn't right, and yet the Bible's saying no. Not only did he cause us, but he's with him in it. So the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man and was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him uh, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him and he made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. So the Lord's with Joseph. Like he's doing amazing things to the point that Potiphar's like, I trust you so much, I'm putting you over my entire house. Like God is causing these things to happen still. And then you know that Potiphar has a wife that looks at Joseph's like, man, he's a really attractive young man, tries to seduce Joseph over and over. And here's some of these places we see him being righteous and obedient. He continues to go, no, like I'm not doing this until eventually she grabs him and she grabs his cloak. It's like, no, this is happening. And he literally runs for his life from her, leaving her cloak, his cloak in her hand. Like the ultimate example of flee from sexual immorality. He literally ran. And so she comes back. Uh, Potiphar comes back. She's like, man, this Hebrew that you put in our household tried to lay with me. I screamed and you ran away. Potiphar obviously doesn't even ask Jacob his end of the story and throws him into Egyptian prison. <laughs> Egyptian prison. Thousands of years ago. And here he is, the faithful young man, the, the one that loves the Lord, the one that's been obedient, the one that God is with him and favoring him is in prison. And I don't know how long he was in prison, but it was enough to gain favor with the prison guards. Like, that's going to take some time. But this theme of God being with Joseph continues. And, and he finds favor in the prison guard. Now he's running the inside of the prison. And we get to this moment where there's the cupbearer, the guy that would, like, drink uh, the, the wine of the king to make sure it's not poisoned because he, he would die instead of the king, was in there. And then Pharaoh's baker. And they have these dreams. And they come to Joseph, they're like, man, do you know what these dreams mean? And the first one was the cupbearer, and he's like, bro, this, this means you're about to get to go back with the king. He's going to put you in your rightful place, and things are going to go well. And the baker's like, I really like his interpretation. So he comes, and he's like, what about my dream? And he's like, yeah, man, they're going to hang you, and the birds are going to eat your face off here in a couple of days. Uh, didn't go the way he wanted it to go. And sure enough, both of these things happen. But as they're on their way out, Joseph looks to the cupbearer, he's like, man, when you get up to Pharaoh, like, don't forget me. Like, remember that God's with me and, and, and tell him who I am. And the Bible says that two years passed from that point. I don't know how long he's been in prison already. He's doing all the right things. God's given him this amazing ability to interpret dreams, and two more years pass until Pharaoh finally has his dreams, and he pulls Joseph out to interpret his dreams. And it turns out that God is about to bring a famine on the land that Egypt would have seven years where, like, everything they did would grow in abundance but there was going to be seven years where the whole world was going to be in famine and be dying and there was going to be no bread to be found. And Joseph's like, look, look if we're smart, you, you should start storing up big time in these next seven years and, and that'll help us in the seven years of famine. And we get to this moment, 13 years have passed since he was put in the pit by his brothers. And here's what in Genesis 41, 38 through 43, Pharaoh says, Chapter 41, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God, in whom is in the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is no, none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be under themselves, under your command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He closed him with garments of linen and put gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. So in God's sovereignty, in his plan, his perfect plan for something much bigger than Joseph, much bigger than his family, like for the world, he's caused Joseph to be thrown into the pit, sold into slavery, gives him a little favor so that he would actually end up in prison. Gives these two guys in the prison the right moment. He interprets the dreams so that he can stand before Pharaoh and tell him these dreams and be now at second in command of all of Egypt. Like, this is crazy. And God is moving for the sake of something so much bigger than Joseph. And so if you know the story, he, he does everything right. Like, they, they gather up tons of grain and bread and, and prepare for the seven years. And it comes, and the world is dying. And they get to the point, it even says that like every nation is selling every earthly thing they have to Egypt just to have some bread to be kept alive. They're going, none of this matters if we die, so you can have it all. I just want bread to live. And eventually, Jacob tells Joseph's brothers, hey, man, we've got to get some bread. I've heard there's some in Egypt. Y'all got to go. And these next couple of chapters are probably Joseph not doing everything probably the way he should have. He's going to get a little bit of just a shove at his brothers. I mean, he tricks them. He makes them think they've stolen from him. They have no idea that Joseph is their brother. They show up. Like, he sends them on. Then he's like, man, I need your younger brother to come back. He puts him, like, he's going to put him in jail. I mean, he's getting, his, he's getting a little bit of a laugh before he's going to go ahead and reveal himself. But eventually we get to this point where these sinners, these guys that have taken away everything from Joseph, come face to face with him, and he he reveals that he's his brother. And I want us to read this account for just a moment. And so in Genesis chapter 45, verse 3 and 8, we see what happens when he finally reveals to his brothers who he is. Verse 3 of 45, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Yeah, they thought he was dead for the last 13 years, or gone. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and said, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He's going, look, I don't want you to be mad about this, this whole thing. It's all good. Why? Because you sold me here, uh, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all the house and ruler over all the lands of Egypt. Like Joseph begins to see clearly now, like this whole thing has been God. Like can you imagine 13 years of your life just going, why is everything falling apart? Like why do I continue to do good and yet I find myself receiving what should be going to evil people? And he gets to the end, and his brothers are standing before him in this amazing act of forgiveness. He goes, man, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was my God. 
the one that I've entrusted my soul to, the creator of the heavens, he sent me here. He has done all this. In fact, you know the really famous verse in, in, in Genesis 50 where he says, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Not what you meant for evil, God turned to good. He's going, literally, God meant this whole thing to happen. He didn't look at it and respond to it. He made it happen. And there's this massive purpose to save for you a remnant, to save for the world a remnant. And from him, Israel is saved. His family is saved. And even those around him are benefiting from this God who has put him in this place. Like the world has provision in these moments. It's this amazing sequence of the sovereignty of God. But I think that this is a story that is more than just trying to tell us, hey, don't be jealous and don't be envious. Hey, if you get in bad situations, just know God's sovereign. Like these are all big things and they're important, but this is a small shadow of what God is trying to reveal to us and to the people of Israel. And we're gonna dive hardcore into it next week, but I wanna look for a moment at the shadow of who Joseph is representing. He's a type of Christ And if you begin to look at some of the things that have happened, you're going, oh my gosh, like God was trying to reveal to the world there's a Savior coming. And so in an article entitled, Joseph is a Type and a Shadow of Jesus Christ, here's here's a few of the things that the author points out. And I want you to see this because it's, it's pretty amazing when you really dive in. The first thing is this, in Genesis 37, who, who sent Joseph to his brothers to go find him that led to his death? His father did. And we know in John 6, 39... Jesus is saying, hey, the Father has sent me here to my brothers to save them. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. The next part, he meets this guy, and the guy's like, who are you looking for? He's like, I'm seeking my lost brothers. Where are they? Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Christ came, sent by the Father to seek out You and I, his brothers and sisters who were lost. Joseph is stripped of his tunic of many colors. If you remember, as uh, Jesus has been scourged, they strip him of his tunic, put the robe and the crown of thorns on him as he heads up to the cross. Joseph is sold by his brother for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus is sold by his disciple for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a slave. And then all of a sudden, you have this exaltation of the one who was put in the pit, put in the valley. Joseph comes up, and now he's reigning to the point that people, he's riding in the chariot, and people are saying, bow the knee as Joseph comes. Like, everybody's bowing their knees, and we remember that finally Jesus is resurrected. He's given new clothing, like his new resurrected body in his righteousness. And it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And then he provides salvation to the people. Like Joseph stands in the gap when the world is dying to the point that people are realizing all I need is the bread of life because nothing else is going to save me. And they sell out everything else that the world has so that they can live. And Joseph is the one giving them this bread of life. And Jesus steps in. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. And what he calls you and I to is to get to a place where we go, it doesn't matter about any of these other things. The 16 things that the Ohio State professor's talking about don't matter if I don't have the bread of life, if I can't drink of the living water. And then he provides forgiveness to the sinner. 
Like Joseph had the right to do whatever he pleased with his brothers. And he was in a place of authority that he could do that. And yet he shows this amazing grace and mercy to those that had tried to kill him. Like had sinned greatly against him, had rejected him at the highest level. And he shows grace and forgiveness. He goes, this was the purpose I was sent here for. And we have Jesus doing the same, coming to you and I, who would have nothing to do with him if it wasn't for him pursuing us. We'd already made our decision that we didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so he came and pursued us, sent by the Father, resurrected from the grave. And he goes, I offer to you my enemy, salvation and forgiveness to the ultimate, not just to save you from some earthly things, but to give you eternal life. He's a greater Joseph. And then we end with this idea that this is a great act of evil that Joseph says, this is meant, God meant this for good. And we have the greatest act of evil, the son of God being murdered by his, his own people that caused the greatest act of good that God could do for us. Like this is the shadow of what we got to afford, what we got to have. And we see it, and it's so easy for us to see it because we get to read it in, in, an, in 30 minutes, and we go, yeah, I see the story, but can you imagine what God is doing in this? And he promises the same thing for us, church. One, he promises the salvation and forgiveness, but there has to be a moment where we go, I'm gonna die unless I have the bread of life. I'll give you everything, Lord. I'm gonna follow you because I've gotta have you because you're the only thing that will sustain me. And he says he will forgive us and save us. But then as his people, like, there's gotta be this reminder. Why is it so hard to remember this? And we look and we go, why are bad things happening? Or, man, I'm just going to pursue all this other stuff. And we forget that we were dying in the wilderness and God provided life in Jesus for us. So he says, trust me. Trust the faithful creator with your soul and your heart because he loves you. 1 Peter 4.19, we read it at the beginning. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Here's my hope for us. And God promises that you and I are gonna suffer for the gospel. And it's a good and it's a right thing. And he's accomplishing purposes in our life that far exceed anything you could possibly imagine. And we won't see it. But what we're doing is we're going, you've proven your love. You've proven that you are worthy of falling regardless of the cost. I'm going to count it joy to suffer with you, Jesus. So whatever you need from my life, I give it to you. My yes is on the table. And wherever he leads us, we go, man, I'm going to entrust my soul to this faithful creator. And I'm going to continue to do good by being faithful and obedient to you, Jesus, because you gave everything for me. Let's pray together. And so, God, I thank you um, for your love and provision for us. God, we, we still don't have a good view yet of really what you have done in saving us, what you've saved us from, or what you have saved us to. We, we, we only have a, a dim view of that. And so I thank you for stories like this that remind us that we were wandering in the desert in a famine with nothing to save us and to lay down all the things that motivate the behavior of mankind to follow you is where real life and joy and salvation is found. And so one, God, I pray for the person in this room that's never given their life to you.
that they would look at this story and they would see the extreme amount of love and, and grace that you have lavished on us that we might be saved. That you would open up our eyes enough to see that though there's so much good in the world, none of those things can feed us when we're dying. But you can. And so I pray for salvation to come to those that don't know you this morning. God, I pray for the believer in this room that has been in a season of doing good and yet just reaping no rewards of righteousness. That it would seem as though you are, uh, are just gone. And to remember that you are still with them. And that the things that we go through, God, you're either allowing or you're causing and it is for a great good that we don't yet see. And so we entrust our souls to you, Lord. Trust our lives to you. Rejoice when it's hard. Stand firm with courage and boldness to be your disciples. And so would you have your way during this time of response? And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.